This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... This is Mohamed Namous. He lived in the besieged town of Madea. He died on Wednesday because, like thousands of his neighbours, he didn't have enough to eat. By almost any measure and stick you want to use, Syria has been the worst war that the world has seen in the 21st century. What we're seeing is a trend towards negative coping mechanisms, early marriage, child labour, and what's really alarming is increased attempted suicide rates. Yeah, acute malnutrition of children. As things stand, this may end up being the last shipment of humanitarian aid, food and medicine from Turkey into northwest Syria. We support 2.4 million people through that one border. 50,000 trucks have gone through that one border since 2014. A resolution to allow the crossing to operate for another 12 months was supported by all members apart from China, which abstained, and Russia, which used its veto. In order to have cross-border humanitarian aid, there must be authorization from the Security Council. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. Today we're going to look at a subject which was my headline news for years and has now maybe slipped off the radar screen somewhat, although it probably shouldn't have. It's more than 11 years since the conflict in Syria began. We saw violent disruption and conflict across the country, the siege of Homs, the bombing of Aleppo, a massive refugee crisis, a massive humanitarian crisis. And yet we don't, nowadays we don't hear that much about Syria, but the fact is that conflict hasn't gone away. The humanitarian needs haven't gone away. Today we're going to have a look at what is happening and we're going to talk to some leading humanitarians. I'm delighted to have on the program Sanjana Kwasi, who's head of OCHA, that's the UN's Coordination for Humanitarian Relief. She's based in Turkey. The World Food Programme had to reduce by 13% their food rations because of funding. And Tanya Evans, she is Syria Country Director for the International Rescue Committee. She's joining us from Amman in Jordan. In northwest Syria a year ago, 100 lira would enable me to feed my entire family. Now 100 Turkish lira is only enabling me to buy one loaf of bread. And our analyst as ever, Daniel Warner. If I read the English newspapers, it's all about Ukraine. How can we put what's happening in Syria back on the radar. I'm going to start with you, Sanjana, because I read something that startled even me, the journalist who's covered this subject for so long, that the United Nations says the number of Syrians in need is higher now than at any point during this 11-year conflict. Can you tell me a bit about the needs and maybe tell us a bit about the people you meet, the kind of challenges they're facing, the lives they're leading. Thanks, Imogen. As you said, you know, this has been very much in your radar, Syria, for the last couple of years and no longer as much. But for those of us who sit and work on Syria, it is very real crisis. And it has only gotten worse already in the 12th year of the crisis. It is one of the world's largest humanitarian crises of our time. 
90% of the population lives below the poverty line. And it is the largest ever number of people in need that we've seen in these 11 to 12 years uh, this year with 14.6 million people who are in need of humanitarian aid. That would be close to double the population of Switzerland, which is, I believe, around 8.7 million or so. It's huge and it doesn't get smaller. The, the, the crisis, of course, is, is getting more and more compounded as one of the largest displacement crises, uh, protection crisis. On top of that, we've seen food insecurity. On top of that, there's the economic crisis. And on top of that, we had a pandemic that continues, of course. The extreme needs are in the Northwest. We forget that there are hostilities and daily airstrikes in the Northwest of Syria, killing and injuring uh, civilians. A large number of, of the population live in tents, tents that are inadequate, inadequate in terms of dealing with extreme weather. We are now worried about the winter that's coming, and we've seen in the past you know, how brutal these winters are in Syria. And protection issues related to tents that are not good for women and children, particularly girls, because of... Um, exposure, not having their privacy, etc. And that's one of the things you asked me, you know, what do we hear? A lot of the women speak about protection, suicide, and other mental health issues that often get off the radar, I would believe. We talk about nutrition, we talk about food, we talk about health, but we don't always talk about mental health. And that's certainly on the rise in the country. What you've come out with there, Sanjana, are staggering statistics. 14.6 million people in need. Tanya, let's hear it from your perspective. Obviously, you're aware of these statistics. Tell us what that concretely means for the work that IRC does. Absolutely. I mean, exactly as Sanjana has described, the the context on the ground probably is the most complex and dire that we have seen in the history of this crisis. Um, With all of these issues coming together and converging, what we're seeing is the perfect storm. And this is having a significant and real impact on the lives of people inside Syria. Sanjana has referenced a lot towards the northwest, of course, and what we're seeing on the ground there and the realities for the families there. But a lot of that also is incredibly true also to the northeast of Syria, um, where the IRC is also working. Large numbers of populations still living in camps, in tents, which are inadequate. Harsh winters, again, really affecting the ability of of families to be able to, to keep their families warm and safe during those really harsh, cold months. In the winter just gone, we heard of stories coming where families were unable to provide fuel for their homes. So we're looking at ways to keep themselves warm and we're resorting to burning highly toxic materials, knowing that they were highly toxic, but that was the only way that they could keep themselves warm in that time. Syria's economy is in tatters. The UN says food prices tripled last year and estimates four in five Syrians now live below the poverty line. This winter, there has been a shortage of fuel and wheat. 
We have stories from communities on the ground, from families on the ground saying to us, you know, a year ago, a hundred lira would enable me to feed my entire entire family. Now a hundred Turkish lira is only enabling me to buy one loaf of bread. These are the realities that families are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And as a result, what we're seeing across the board is a trend towards negative coping mechanisms, in particular, early marriage, child labor and what's really alarming and what we're hearing a lot of about at the moment is increased attempted suicide rates in northwest syria we're hearing that almost one in five attempted suicide rates are amongst children that is incredibly concerning danny we sit in geneva we talk about humanitarian crises all the time this is a staggering humanitarian crisis and yet geneva's not talking about it that much Well, not only Geneva, but if I read the English newspapers, magazines, it's all about Ukraine and other places. And my question is, how can we put what's happening in Syria back on the radar? Because obviously, as you've described it, both of you, the needs are staggering, overwhelming, and yet the world's attention, as far as I can see, has focused really on Ukraine. So how to bring Syria back on the front pages and have more donations, more activity from the humanitarian community, which seems to be stretched. Is that a conversation you're having at uh, at OCHA, Sanjana? Yes, of course. And it is certainly a concern. And I know that, you know, our humanitarian response plan for Syria, which asks for about $4.4 billion, is 25% funded, and we are now in August. A normal trend of these appeals are, you know, even last year wasn't particularly good, but it hit nearly 50%. This year, we don't know. And, and from our side, what we've been doing, I mean, for us, I mean, both our emergency relief coordinator, Martin Griffiths, and the deputy emergency relief uh, coordinator, uh, Joyce Musuya, both have come to Syria. We need to continue between them and everybody else, keep the different crises sort of alive and give as much equal attention as possible. But of course, with Ukraine, we are seeing and every organization is seeing not only about funding, but, you know, our deployments and our staff being, you know, focused on on Ukraine, etc. So I think that we are all trying to keep Syria alive because, you know, before the cross-border resolution in July, we saw a number of member states come to the border to advocate for a renewal. So that was certainly a good uh, gesture. Um, But again, you know, as you said, it is becoming a forgotten crisis. And I think we're all trying to fight for it to remain as uh, as as much as possible on on, on people's um, mind. Four point one million people rely on this lifeline, but it must be authorized by the UN Security Council. And in the council chamber, there's deadlock, a resolution. You know, you brought me neatly to a question that I have, and I think Danny will have questions about this as well. I'll I'll ask Tanya first. We've had regularly this debate, does aid for Syria need to be delivered from outside Syria, cross-border, so from Turkey into Syria? Now, some people argue that since Damascus is in control of large parts of Syria again now, and they say that they permit aid deliveries 
across the country, is it still so important, this cross-border delivery? Because the UN Security Council does argue about it. Tanya, I have several communiques from the IRC arguing for the importance of these cross-border deliveries. So why don't you, first of all, tell me a bit what they are and then why you think they're so necessary. Absolutely. Um, so we first saw the introduction of the cross-border mechanism back in 2014 when the UN Security Council um, responded to the Syrian crisis by authorising the use of cross-border delivery for humanitarian aid in Syria. It's important to remember when we talk now that there are 14.6 million people in need today, when the cross-border mechanism was authorised in 2014, there were 10 million people in need in Syria. So the number is going up. So to your question, you know, do we need aid to be, be delivered via cross-border mechanisms? With the crisis being more complex than it ever was, with the number of people in need of humanitarian assistance going up, not down, we believe and we continue to advocate for all modalities of humanitarian assistance, be that cross-line or um, cross-border. When there are so many people in need, when the needs are so complex, when we're talking about health needs and we're talking about protection needs, when we're talking about mental health and psychosocial support, when we're talking about food, we have to use every modality possible. With the closure of the cross-border access in northeast Syria, what we saw um, when these borders were closed in 2020 was um, a very dire impact on the response in northeast Syria. We were unable to sustain the level of operations that were being provided through the response when that cross-border mechanism was operational. The reality of that has been a reduction in aid delivered through cross-border mechanisms. Um, and a, a very concrete example is with, with COVID, with the pandemic, Unfortunately, um, WHO have not been able to ensure um, sufficient vaccines are provided cross-line. So we do need to ensure that we have all modalities moving forward. I've got a little statistic about that, which I, I was reading just, just before we started the programme, that I think it's this year the World Food Programme has delivered aid via Damascus, from Damascus across Syria, to just under 50,000 people. A bit better than nothing. But from the hub in Turkey, 1.4 million have been reached. So maybe that tells you, you know, the practicalities of why these cross-border deliveries are so important. Danny, you want to come in there. It seems sensible. And yet the UN Security Council disagrees on this one. Yeah, I think that's the problem, uh, Imogen, that I was going to raise uh, in order to have cross-border humanitarian aid, there must be authorization from the Security Council. And in July, that authorization was stopped to be continued. Uh, I don't want to be a pessimist, uh, but that must affect your work on the ground. Uh, and again, uh, thinking about putting the Syria crisis on the radar, how would one deal with changing the Security Council and trying to get this access back on board? How you deal with the Security Council, that's a very big question. But just supplementing that, as far as I understand it, the cross-border, it's reduced to just one. There was one in Jordan, I think, wasn't there, Tanya? And that's gone now. So there is just this one from Turkey into Syria. This is one of the biggest humanitarian aid operations in the world. At the UN-Syria cross-border aid center in Turkey's Hatay province, freight trucks are loaded with critical aid. 
it was on a 12-month renewable, and the final compromise that the Security Council came to was six months, which means it's going to expire in the middle of winter. Either Sanjana, Tanya, both, who wants to come in there? This this must be a bit of a worry. Yeah, I, I can start. It, it, it's a huge concern. I mean, if we just think about the winter just gone, it was one of the harshest winters that we've seen in the region for a very long time. And we were hearing of very dire situations coming out of, of both northwest and northeast Syria. With the resolution coming to an end in January, we are hugely concerned that if we end up either with, you know, potentially a non-renewal or indeed a a period of, of prolonged negotiations, that puts the entire response on hold while we wait for an outcome and a response. So we're very concerned about this. We had very much been advocating very openly for 12 months. We believe that a 12-month renewal is what is required to ensure responsible and sustained humanitarian programming. And so now with this six-month renewal, we're all kind of, you know, relieved for this moment, but already looking forward to to January and thinking, okay, what do we need to do? How much can we as humanitarian agencies begin to pre-position ahead of the winter, ahead of this renewal again in January, so that we can try as much as possible to ensure that we don't end up in a situation where we've got a gap and where um, services and um, supplies are not delivered to people in need. Sanjana, what do you see as the, the, uh, the consequences of this kind of uncertainty? You've got six months not 12. You've got the threat of of no renewal in six months. What would that mean? Yeah, well, Imogen, as Tanya said, this is certainly not easy. I mean, you know, six months is not ideal, but you know, we'll have to always see uh, glass as half full, and which is that is better than any other alternative that we could have had. The way we try to do it, and we, we were doing it even before July, um, is work in two tracks. One is continue to advocate for the renewal of the resolution. At all levels, we continue to do that. Increasing cross-line, looking at early recovery and how we can ramp up early recovery. Because I think we all recognize 12 years into a crisis, we also need to look at not just life-saving, but we'd also need to look at some longer-term programming. That is what the what the ask is by the people in Syria as well. You know, when you ask them on what are your top needs, livelihoods is is up there so we're trying to see you know with or without a resolution how best you know can we continue to support the people in need so that remains always our number one plan we support 2.4 million people through that one border 50,000 trucks have gone through that one border since 2014 on average 700 trucks a month so it's, it's a life-saving mechanism. And I don't think there is such a thing as an alternate that will be at scale. Danny, can I ask you, because, you know, humanitarian aid agencies, the rules they live by are impartiality, neutrality, serving people in need caught up in, in conflict or humanitarian crises. However, governments, states sometimes do play politics with aid. And we've seen at the Security Council, it was Russia who did not want this cross-border thing renewed. I mean, people will be scratching their heads why this should be controversial. 
I'm going to ask Danny to speculate on that because the humanitarian agency is not your business. Your business is to is to deliver the aid when and how you can. Well, I think the concept uh, of a complex emergency is correct here, but it's gone on for 11 years. Not only did Russia veto in the Security Council, but there was a meeting scheduled July here in Geneva for a new constitution for Syria peace talks, and that was postponed. So my question could be, uh, politically, how much longer can this go on? Uh, and what we see after 11 years is it seems to be a proxy now for tensions between Russia, Turkey, Iran, the United States, etc. So it's become not just a humanitarian problem, but it's taken on international politics, uh, which is not your job. Uh, but it does say that in the long term, uh, it's very difficult to see how this is going to end. Well, that just a little bit of background there. Of course, it's the UN Special Envoy for Syria, Gear Peterson, was due to have Syrian opposition, Syrian government and civil society, these three groups in Geneva. They have met fairly regularly over many years, supposedly drafting a new constitution. But hand on heart, they have been at best limping along. And in July, they didn't happen at all. People couldn't even agree to turn up, which is which is must be disappointing for ordinary people in Syria who I'm sure would like a functioning government and a constitution that everybody can sign up to. This is all that remains of the bazaar in Aleppo's old city. Hundreds of years of history and billions of dollars worth of business have been wiped out. Samjana and Tanya, looking at the humanitarian side of it, Danny said, how long you know, can this be sustainable? I mean, surely a humanitarian crisis that's gone on this long, and let's be clear, the conflict is not over yet. There is the risk, isn't there, when a humanitarian crisis lasts so long of decades of instability, insecurity? It's a vicious circle. You perhaps can't ever get out of it. There's also the element of compassion fatigue on the part of the donors after a moment. This is what war in Syria looks like. Hospitals, schools and homes reduced to rubble. The cost of rebuilding. Estimates range from $100 billion to $350 billion. I mean, we could look at it also from the point of reconstruction. How do you get out of a humanitarian crisis when the entire infrastructure is pretty much in ruins? Schools, hospitals. It's not as if it's it's a natural disaster and you can mop up and clean up and people might live insecurely in temporary shelter for a while. This is on and on and on. Absolutely. I mean, if we think about the work that we're doing inside northern Syria, first and foremost, it's about um, meeting basic needs. Um, as the IRC, um, health is a key part of our response, supporting primary health facilities across the, the northern part of Syria, really addressing the impact that these health facilities has have faced as a result of ongoing conflict. You know, there's been deliberate attacks on health facilities. Um, they are destroyed, they're in ruins, facilities are not working properly, um, resources are lacking. So that's really where the focus of our work is um, in terms of helping rebuild the health facilities to ensure that communities are able to have their basic health needs met. But alongside that, to your point, we are in a protracted crisis and what we really need to be doing and thinking about is supporting 
communities, families to build resilience, to look at how they can move away from this crisis, how they can be sustainable, how they can support their needs. So alongside protection work, health work, what we're also really looking at is economic recovery and development. Now, there is not enough funding for this type of work. And so what we would love to see is more funding focused on ERD, not taking that funding away from from food and health and protection, but also seeing funding towards economic recovery and development so that we can be working with families, with communities, with individuals to help them build their incomes, to help them have a sustainable income, to look at at how they can be supporting their families and trying to reduce that reliance on humanitarian aid. Um, We know, of course, that Syria has, in addition to all of the realities surrounding the conflict with the um, the economic situation, Syria has also experienced a very severe drought, which has impacted agriculture. We are doing a lot more work with farmers, um, looking at how we can support farmers to learn more modern technologies, how they can understand the change in climate and how they can improve seed production. These are all very small scale projects in the grand scheme of things, but they're incredibly important projects that support building resilience and helping kind of build that future and sustainability for families and communities. So we would love to see more funding um, in that line of work as well. Years of war and now a severe drought has made this nation a net importer of wheat. The rise in global prices sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine is threatening food supplies to many people in Syria. Sanjana, I saw you nodding there. And interestingly, I was also looking at some some stats about that. There is the drought. Syria is producing, I think, 25% less wheat than it was a couple of years ago, right at the in the middle of a food crisis and massive inflation. I mean, I read some staggering statistics that the cost of food has risen by 8%. 100% in just two years. Now, Tamia's talking there about extra money for small-scale development. You're dealing primarily with humanitarian relief, but with the inflation and the food crisis, are you even able to deliver what you would have liked to deliver given your budget that you put out at the start of this year? You must be able to purchase less. Yes, certainly. Uh, this is when Ukraine has not made the situation any any better. The food crisis was there before even Ukraine, but now we've heard that the World Food Program had to reduce uh, by 13% their food rations because of funding. And that, and you know, Tanya had spoken about negative coping mechanisms. And this is, you know, certainly where we're seeing people are eating less, eating unhealthy food, missing out on nutritious food. Children are suffering, of course, from it already that they were not getting enough and malnutrition that was already quite staggering in in Syria is getting worse. Um, That's affecting stunting. So yeah, it is, we're, we're grappling with, that's why it's hard to even talk about when we talk about, you know, the economy and early recovery and reconstruction, as you said, Imogen, yes. But when you're dealing with not being able to get the basic services and when children are out of school, you don't have the proper shelter and you are dealing with people who are either hand to mouth, 90% of the population being under the poverty line, then there is a food crisis. It's really hard um, 
to prioritize anything else beyond life-saving and humanitarian. But yet we know that if this crisis is going to continue, which we can see it will, and 12 years on, we know that we do need to have better livelihoods and jobs and agriculture and et cetera that are a little bit more um, long-term and with less funding. So we're just, we kind of go around in a circle where are we going to prioritize and what are we going to be able to do for the people in need? Danny, do you want to come in there? Well, I just find Tanya's comment about trying to go from crisis humanitarian assistance to some form of development, uh, given the drought and less money, uh, seems to me admirable, but extraordinarily difficult in these times, because the basics are still missing. And with a protracted crisis, uh, that becomes really the basis of what you have to do, uh, whereas the development things seem to be cherries on the cake, uh, in a sense. Uh, but the, going from a crisis to development seems to be the future for what happens in Syria. Uh, hopefully, it can be done reasonably in spite, of, in spite of the drought and other things. Do you know what? We are getting actually almost towards the end of the program. Massive subject. We could talk for an hour rather than half an hour. But we have, I think, covered some of the key things I wanted to cover, which were the current situation, why we shouldn't forget about Syria, the fact that we've got almost a a triple whammy now with a protracted conflict, food insecurity, inflation. But what I would like to do, because I'd never like to end a program on a complete note of pessimism, I'd like to ask our aid workers first to bring a little note of optimism. What keeps you going? And then, Danny, I'll let you wind up and and maybe give us a little bit of advice about what you think International Geneva should, perhaps could be doing better. Sanjana, I'll I'll start with you. What keeps you going? What makes you think, I have to keep working, even though it's 11 years, even though this is such a prolonged humanitarian crisis, and I sometimes fear donor countries are forgetting about me? What would you say to them? I'm I'm keeping on going. You should too. I would say that what keeps me going are the people and, and, and their resilience. If they can keep going, being in the midst of a war or in a situation that, you know, we have described uh, day in, day out. And yet, you know, if you look at pictures of Syria, you mainly see women and girls and boys and men too smiling. I mean, like there is hope. And as long as there's hope, that will always keep me going. Tanya? Yes, absolutely. Very similar to Sanjana. If we think about the teams on the ground, our teams on the ground who are implementing these programs, who are delivering these services, these are Syrians who are also affected by this context. They are part and parcel of that community. Um, and so it is It is our teams on the ground who are doing this incredible work, their resilience to get up every day and continue providing these services even when they themselves are scared for their future, scared for the safety of their families. That's what keeps me going every single day. Danny, what would you like to say? Both of the uh, people we've spoke with have given a wonderful example to all of us about what humanity means. And unfortunately, the politicians and statespeople are more concerned from time to time 
with their own national interest instead of looking at the people. Uh, and I do hope that negotiations will take place on the cross-border issue of humanitarian assistance, but also in terms of stopping what's happening in Ukraine and other places. And it's really all to the credit of the humanitarians who keep working in these extremely difficult uh, situations uh, and hopefully helping all of these people who sometimes the politicians and statesmen forget. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. I'd like to thank my guest, Sanjana Kwasi of OCHA, Tanya Evans of the International Rescue Committee, and our analyst, Daniel Warner. And I would just say to our listeners out there, if you'd forgotten about Syria, don't. Because a forgotten humanitarian crisis is a humanitarian crisis that doesn't end. It's in nobody's interest to have this go on and on and on. Think about the people of Syria and the fact that, as Sanjana said, they do carry on. They retain some hope that their lives will at some time return to normal. And it's in all our interests to help them with that. Thanks to all of you. And thank you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.